there's no contesting that the greatest potential upside for any given film is in a robust theatrical window. can't believe we're at episode seven welcome to episode seven of the craft podcast i'm john and my co-host is veronica we create the show because we like to nerd out about craft and we find mastery sexy i'll give you an example i was just looking at this youtube channel today it's uh there's this uh chinese woman her name is I, i'm gonna pronounce her wrong but it's uh i think it's like Lee Tzu-Chi. And I don't know if you've ever seen her on, on YouTube or Instagram, but she's awesome. Like she builds her own furnaces and cooks. Uh, like when she cooks food, she like, she plants the, <laughs> she plants the vegetables. She, she raises the animals. She like slaughters her own animals and, and things of that nature. So it is, it is wild. And um, you know, it's stuff like that, that makes me excited. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that woman is uh, some kind of internet <laughs> goddess. Her content yes. is so compelling. <laughs> like, how does she do all those things? I, I, I don't even know. Um, Veronica, do you want to introduce our guest today? I most definitely do. Thank you, John. Uh, today, we are so excited to be on the line with Alex Keys. So Alex is currently the director of finance and deal analysis at XTX Entertainment. Uh, and I wonder, Alex, if you could start out just by telling us a bit about what SDX does for those who aren't as familiar with the company. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so STX, which was just acquired by Eros, so we're now Eros STX, um, a division of a Indian public company. We are one of the last few mini majors still standing out there independent of a massive conglomerate. Um, so we live in the space of small independent films, mid-budget films that don't seem to make their way through the development system anymore. Uh, it's a pretty exciting place to be. We recently did Greenland, uh, which did very well on the new PBOD model. Uh, some of our other titles are Bad Moms and Hustlers. Exciting. Well, I'm looking forward to chatting more about those titles in particular. Very first, big picture, taking a step back, this is the craft podcast. What would you say is your craft as a director of finance and deal analysis? Our group is really beholden to every part of the company for summarizing each stage in the life cycle of a film. Uh, so not just the theaters, not just DVDs, not just streaming everything that a film goes through over the first 10 years of its life rolls up to what we call an ultimate. Um, and that's something that I oversee and adjust as time goes on. So if we're breaking down what industries in particular that touches or what are the kinds of keywords that would be associated with your job if someone were uh, trying to goose it, are we talking about obviously finance deal analysis, a content valuation? Absolutely. So many of our films in our library are acquisitions. So content valuation, content acquisitions. We support business affairs, although I am not myself a lawyer. Talent deal negotiation. These are all different names for things that we touch upon. Could you let us know how you ended up where you are today? 
Absolutely. It's uh, definitely not been a straight shot path. I honestly just didn't really know. I didn't know this existed first and I didn't know what I wanted to do initially either. I actually did Asian studies as an undergrad. I studied Chinese and Japanese, so very, very different. Went out to Asia for a couple of years and knew I wanted to come back to the States, but not being a citizen, I was born a UK national. I decided to go through graduate school. So I applied to an MBA program and I got accepted to a dual degree with the MFA at the film school. I grew up in LA. So the film industry was always somewhat omnipresent and felt maybe more tangible than it might to others who didn't have that background. And I, yeah, I just wanted to find a grounded, more realistic way into that industry that had always been, been really interesting to me. When I was there at school, people sort of filtered either more onto the creative side or onto the business side. I was more the latter, but I still wanted to be as close to content as possible, which at the time felt like it was most relevant to distribution roles. So that's where I went initially. And it was very interesting. I actually sold Pixar, Disney and Marvel movies into theaters for a few years. And that's a, a really deep rabbit hole with its own culture and history and everything. But I figured out very slowly over time that it really wasn't an area that valued MBAs. So I was sort of looking around me and trying to find things that were related and adjacent and where I could transition so that I could leverage that investment in my career that I'd already made. And I had an opportunity to help out the STX business development team with something that they needed to bring in house. And based on that, when the manager at the time in my group left to go to HBO Max, I was able to raise my hand and sneak in despite not necessarily having some of the traditional finance bona fides that they typically look for, like consulting, internships, investment banking experience, things like that. Let me just share three things I liked about your story. First, I think there's like an expectation, especially among MBAs that, you know, they should have like a perfect career journey. They, uh, you know, get promoted every two, three years with a title bump and obviously hopefully a compensation bump. Um, but it's just not, it's not the case. I haven't really met that many people like that. The second thing, um, which I, I definitely want to highlight is that the industry you wanted to work in happens to be centered in this city, Los Angeles. A lot of people who want to get into gaming, I always tell them to come to SoCal because a lot of the game studios are here. And just by being here, you're, you open yourself up to more opportunities. And I think the third thing I like about your story is just being like realistic. Um, I feel like you had like a, you know, I don't want to call it like North Star, but you, you knew kind of where you want to go. And sometimes you had to take a twist or turn and uh, to, to hit there. I think those things really resonate uh, with me and, and for people who are kind of like looking for career switches. I mean, I know we've talked about how opaque, particularly in entertainment titles can be even between different companies, the same job has a completely different title. So it's really hard to know what job you want to go for. But if you can figure out, I think, what function you would like to offer to a company that can maybe be a little bit more helpful than looking for a specific title. Well, and you have to know, I, I feel like you explore around in your career to find out what you want to do as much as what you don't want to do. Oh, for sure. And uh, to your point as well about being in SoCal, I really should have known that before I went to <laughs> business school. Um, the dual degree was really valuable and unique. And I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't go back and change it. However, I will say that unless you want to work in news, sports or television, it is a hurdle that you then have to overcome if you're recruiting from the East Coast for jobs that are mostly located on the West Coast. And even though uh, my distribution work at Disney wasn't really where I wanted to end up, ultimately, they did transition me to LA. So that was very helpful. And hopefully you like it there. Hopefully you like the weather. Oh, it's coming home. I, I went to high school in Los Angeles. Struck listening to your career journey, obviously now you have landed where you are today. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about what you actually do day to day or, or what your job description actually means, sort of moment to moment. What, what kind of uh, work are you doing? What kind of hats are you wearing? It really, really, really depends day to day. It could be that business affairs is trying to sell off a film that we've been developing for a few years, and then I'll be working with them and with accounting to figure out exactly what our outstanding payments are on that film so that we can put that into our negotiation with whoever might be purchasing the film. It could be that we're negotiating a pay TV deal for a film, and then we have to adjust our ultimate projections for that film. There are so many different things that could impact the trajectory or, or the life of a film and any of those changes that might happen, we're both trying to get a grip on that change and then what the downstream impact is to, to just really be general without getting into too, too much specific. And it also sounds like potentially you're wearing multiple different hats, you know, rather than at a different kind of organization where people would be more in certain lanes, maybe you're covering a bunch. Oh, definitely. Um, I should mention that although it is not part of my my title and it wouldn't traditionally be somewhat, something that someone in my role would handle, I do also manage all of the analysis and projections for our digital home entertainment group, simply because we're just a very, very lean staff at STX. And if you can do the work, then they will have you jump in and get your hands dirty. So that's been really interesting over the last year with COVID. That entire market has basically doubled in value, if not more than that. Um, and then you add on the layer of premium VOD being a new way to exploit films. That's over the top of doubling those revenues. So it's been very, very hot. Well, and career-wise, you know, there are pros and cons of being part of a, a lean, mean machine. Do you, do you like being part of a lean staff? I do. I'm a masochist, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I prefer to be busy. There's nothing worse than showing up to work and sitting around twiddling your thumbs for hours on end. So it's nice, I think, at a big, big company that you really have your, your territory is gated and you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And you can really, it, it never varies too much from your expectation. But for me, I like new challenges. I like learning new things. And so I don't think I would ever go back to something where there are just a lot more people and you never really venture too far out of what you're supposed to do. But I want to talk about BA a bit because we, you, you've, we've mentioned this a couple of times. I feel like it's kind of like a pretty good potential like post MBA job. Um, it, it really, uh, or maybe like post JD, right? I think a lot of uh, BAs have law degrees. Since you've been in the industry for a while, um, have you seen MBAs transition into the BA role or, 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 or not? <laughs> or is it more like lawyers? I think they're mostly lawyers. I I know there are some BA people maybe who focus more on the negotiation skills, but I I do think that most of them end up going back to law school and, and getting that degree simply because it opens up more opportunities for you. Some business schools I think do like a dual degree program, 
maybe that would be a really good fit. But mostly MBAs I've seen more in the content acquisition business development side of it. Awesome. Well, I know, John, you were saying you wanted to do some nerding out about content valuation, and I, I definitely am looking forward to that as well. I wonder, you know, Alex, you were mentioning a little bit about the different kind of projects you work on. Do the deals that you work on fall into major buckets? Yeah, I would say so. Mostly two streams. One would be films that we acquire, whether they're completed or not. Uh, and the other would be films that we develop and produce in-house. Um, so the films that we acquire, typically we're negotiating a waterfall with a third party producer, the fees that go with that, the MGs that go with that. With an in-house production, we're more trying to keep control of costs and find a budget that makes sense for us. And then potentially finding a third party co-financier to fill in um, any equity gap that we might need to cover. If we were say John and Veronica are making the John and Veronica amazing movie. What, what would you want to know if you were going to value John and Veronica's amazing movie? What would you want to know about it? How, how amazing it is? Uh, yes, we would definitely, that is important if it's, if it's not got a good script or coverage or even a, a treatment, then it's probably not going to get a second look first by talent, which would usually be attached before it comes to us. Um, but even if it was something that we picked up just as a naked script and tried to attach people to, if it's not got a good rating from a reader or some kind of a gatekeeper, it's just never going to get in front of us in the first place. Um, so yes, the, the subjective value of the idea, for sure. Um, the director or the talent that may already be attached to it, maybe by CAA or some other packager, when it might be available, the budget, the appeal to international markets, because we are still in that sort of indie space where we're offsetting the production cost with international sales. So we have, for example, a film that just got announced that's about American football, which I think sounds great, but it's not such a great sell for internationals. So it needs to be made at a price that makes sense without that taking a lot of the load. So that, I think those are the main things, cost, quality, and then the package. Well, and I, and I do think you're in an interesting position, right? Where you're taking a creative product and you're trying to put a numerical value on it. What do you think are the challenges or how accurate is it to say that you are sort of quantifying the creative? I don't think that we do at STX. Um, typically, these projects go through a vetting from our development team, which are definitely more creative executives and they really work with writers, directors and give script notes, things like that. So they're the ones that are passing things through if they think it meets a certain standard. But at other companies, I do know that the MBAs and content acquisitions people might also be more the readers and kind of be closer to creative executives. So I think it really depends on the organization, how that gets um, set up. But at STX, if it meets a, a creative standard to get in front of us, then we're going to be building out low, high, medium scenarios. So we're not trying to say it's definitely going to be this. We're saying this is the range of outcomes. Uh, and then based on that, you know, how many of those outcomes are positive for us? Is it really easy for this film to break even? In which case, it's an attractive project. It might be a great movie that we really believe in. But if it's not going to break even for us, unless it's a smash hit, then we probably wouldn't green light it, even though we think it's a great movie. 
creative isn't as much of an exact science. So when it comes to forecasting, you know, you're bringing something into the world theoretically that's never been there before. How how do you project that out? Is it all about comps? It is about comps, but like I was saying before, again, because our analysis is multi-level, we're not predicting a specific pathway at Greenlight. We're giving all the possible scenarios and then what range of those scenarios is good for us. And just speaking to publicly available information, one of my favorite STX movies that we've ever put out, um, Edge of 17, is really, really great. It's a really good movie, but it did not do well at the box office. So you you just try your best, but sometimes quality, because I think it was rated like 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was very high. Quality doesn't necessarily even relate to financial profitability. And we've had some uh, critical stinkers that have done very well. So it's very, very subjective. Absolutely. Also, just logging as, a, as another goal for uh, the rest of the show here that we should have Alex say tomatoes as many times as, as possible. I really like that. Sorry, over to you, John. But one thing I was just really curious about is uh, residuals because we, we have a couple of like waterfall clauses in our contracts. I mean, it's, it's just, it's open knowledge. The, the waterfall clauses are usually not activated for a piece of content that the streamers own because they don't count the revenue from like their subscribers. So unless they sell it, which they usually don't, they don't like, they don't just like, even though they use just SVOD, they don't sell like linear, generally speaking, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Since I haven't dealt with that area before, could you tell us about like the mechanics? Like how do you even track uh, like residuals, waterfalls and like how do you pay it out? Do you pay it out like monthly? Do people like audit you? Like, how does this work? Uh, yes, all of the above. Um, trying to organize my thoughts a little bit because I think there are a lot of questions in there. The first thing I guess I would say about residuals is it really depends on who is responsible for the payout for the waterfalls. So in a situation where Amazon creates something and they have negotiated backend deals with talent, I would imagine that there is some break-even point that gets negotiated or might get triggered by a certain step up, but I'm, I'm not sure how that works. For us, even if we do sell something to SVOD, there are other windows. So there might've been a theatrical release, there might still be a physical release, there might be a pay TV release prior to SVOD. So there are all these different revenue streams, SVOD being just one. And so for us, when we sell to Asphalt, that's a license fee that flows through the waterfall, either at a royalty or at 100%. It depends. And residuals would get paid on that license fee. And the way that those get calculated is negotiated by each of the individual guilds, and that gets updated over time. So like you said, you could have a 30-year career and always be learning new stuff because it's always changing. Those are pre-negotiated contracts, industry-wide contracts, and we have models set up to calculate based on all the different types of revenue that come through. I think this is also relatively generally known. It's recently changed such that residuals are also calculated for certain guilds based on international sales MGs. And that was a huge change because that's something that really only the mini majors and independents like STX use. Disney's not doing that. They're releasing at source around the world. They're not selling off their international rights to someone else for a fee. So they're not affected, but they're the ones that negotiated this change. And then we're left holding the bag. Now we have to pay residuals on those things that don't affect the big guys. 
So these, it's always changing. The amount that we owe is always changing for each release year as the contracts change. Yeah, basically, it's, it's just something that we model out. It's another cost of doing business. As you, as you look at your position, sort of what, what you think are the key skill sets that you bring to work day to day that really allow you to succeed or what you would look for if you had to hire someone to do your job tomorrow? I would say the hard skills would mainly be things that are covered in an MBA. Honestly, having really, really strong Excel skills, understanding your way around generally what a model looks like, how to turn a concept into a table into something that you can manipulate. Those are really important skills. Basic stuff like how does interest work, that, that kind of stuff gets used. I wouldn't say that I use higher mathematical skills, but the, the level that you would pick up at an MBA is definitely something that I use day to day. In terms of more soft skills, I would say being quick to learn and understand business models as they're being changed and described to you. Switching from distribution, I have had to learn a great deal of new information in the last 18 months, and I still feel like I'm just barely, barely, slightly taking the training wheels off because things are always, always changing. And being flexible mentally for that kind of stuff is, is really helpful. I feel like you could say that about many industries, but I, I see that being very real. No, no, no. And, and I, and I equally applicable here. I'm just thinking to myself, uh, I feel like learning fast. Um, it's a, it's a theme that comes up on this podcast anyway. I think specifically for this role, because we have to understand what does the physical home entertainment business look like? What does the theatrical business look like? What does the streaming business look like? What does merchandising business look like? You have to understand basically every other department's job to a certain extent. You even have to understand like marketing finance so that you can build out the P&A correctly. Before this, we talked a little bit about um, generalists versus specialists. And I think yeah. this is definitely a generalist job. And so I think that's what I'm trying to hit on is being able to very quickly gain at least a, a functional working understanding of uh, many, many topics is what I love about this job so much, but could also be a challenge if you're the kind of person that really prefers to delve into one thing deeply. And by the way, saying it applies to many industries was I wholeheartedly support that it applies to your situation. I was more thinking, wow, it's just a really big and relevant takeaway. I feel like for a lot of the fast moving different kinds of careers in entertainment, media and technology specifically. Oh, totally. I, I was like, maybe I gave you too fluffy general an answer, but I, I think it is a general helpful skill set to have. Now, I've been pretty lucky to work at like bigger companies like Amazon, Facebook. So if I don't know anything, I'll like look up someone in our directory and, and ask them. And, and like all the knowledge, it's like all the knowledge in the world is at my fingertips. But I, I feel like you're, you're at a smaller company. So when you're when you are at a smaller company, how are you learning besides on the job? Is there such a thing as like a content? I never looked this up, but is it like a content valuation, like a meetup in LA? Or are you just chatting with your MBA friends? It has been and continues to be a big challenge for me. I, I don't think I'm being humble when I say that there is still so much for me to learn. And I'm fortunate that I work with a manager who's very generous with her time and her knowledge. I also was lucky to have like a full two weeks one-on-one -on -one with the person that I was taking over from. That being said, A, so much is new. There was so much that nobody knew about last year. Uh, and, and B, 
sometimes there's just nobody there who has the answer. And so I do remember the first six months in my job, I spent a lot of my time just reading the contracts and trying to get some context. And, and some of that, I think even if I'd come from a content acquisition background would still have been really valuable because there's a lot that's very specific to STX. And I'm sure that's the same for any company where you'd be doing this kind of work. So unless you were there from when it was founded, you would need to do some homework anyway. Right. The landscape is constantly changing, but also every single organization is going to have a different set of goals or or criteria for what it's trying to do. And speaking of the rapidly changing landscape, you mentioned a little bit earlier sort of some of the impact of COVID on your business. And I wonder how that has changed the world for you kind of across the board. I think it's just given us a lot more options. We got fairly lucky in a way. We had a, a Guy Ritchie crime comedy action movie in January, The Gentleman, which got a pretty full-term theatrical release just finishing up right before lockdown. So we got the benefit of that full theatrical release, but then we also got the benefit of the rising um, home entertainment usage from people in lockdown. And then just by pure chance, we didn't really have that many releases that would have fallen in the period when people were unable to leave their homes. So we were fortunate in a way. However, we did pick up a few movies and we had a couple of movies that we did need to exploit during that time. And we were able to figure out different ways to do that for some films more successfully than others. But for Greenland, I think it's pretty widely understood that that's been a real success. And PVOD now as something else that you can do to make a movie successful, it's just great to have another different way to get movies to customers. People playing with shortened theatrical windows into home entertainment, or like I'm very interested in Army of the Dead doing seven days in theatrical and then being, but all the while, even on trailers in theaters, it's a Netflix movie. Like that's so interesting to me that all this transmedia marketing is becoming so normal. Well, and absolutely blurring the lines or giving you more options, as you say, when you're not just direct to video or a movie and it's also sort of where things are cross-pollinating. I don't think it's gonna last like this forever. I think it's gonna change again in six months to 12 months when people go back to theaters, but um, it's interesting for sure. Well, and I wonder, I mean, do you, you've touched on this a little bit, but whether or not you see this as a positive or a negative development for mini majors or, you know, that what X, STX is trying to do. I think more options is always a good thing, but there's no contesting that the greatest potential upside for any given film is in a robust theatrical window. So if that were to go away because AMC or some other large player can no longer compete, then that would hurt all of us. Um, So it remains to be seen. I I think depending on what the outcome is in say 12 to 24 months, that could be positive or negative, but more options for distributors is fundamentally a good thing, as long as all the options remain viable.